Now we've said a lot of important things this morning already and our time is going but let's just pause for a moment and ask God to help us to focus on his word here this morning together. So let's just bow in a moment's prayer. Open our hearts and minds, Lord, that we may receive what you want to say to us this morning. Take away distracting thoughts and concerns and help us to respond to your law, which is for our good and for our benefit and blessing. Write it on our hearts, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. So said René Descartes, the French philosopher who lived in the first half of the 17th century and is regarded as the founding father of the rationalism that underpinned Western civilization and thought for the next three centuries. The new Archbishop of York, Dr. John Sentamu recently suggested, and it wasn't original to him, I've not been able to trace the origin of the person who first said it, that the motto for British society should be Tesco Ergo Sum. <laughs> I shop, therefore I am. For if anything, especially but not exclusively at Christmas time, if anything defines our society, it is consumerism. Although we own more possessions and are better off than any previous generation, yet still we are not satisfied. If you are feeling low, then the remedy may well be what we call retail therapy. Take a visit to a shopping mall and buy something. No wonder one enterprising store has chosen the name What Everyone Wants. And I've borrowed it as the title for our study today on the last of the Ten Commandments. What everyone wants is more. What we don't have, but which others do have. Expressed in the words of Exodus 20, verse 17. That's our verse, our focus this morning, the last of the Ten Commandments. Which reminds us that what we want may not just be things, it may even be people. Listen carefully. These are the words of God. God spoke all these words. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now the word covet and the related adjective and noun, covetous, and covetousness. They're not commonly used words today, are they? They carry a negative connotation. Even my dictionary seems to pull its pinches. It defines covet as follows. Covet, to wish, long, or crave for. Although it adds in brackets, something, especially the property of another person. Well, you may ask, what's wrong with a traveller wishing, longing, craving for a glass of ice-cold water if he's walking across a desert? Or what's wrong even with Tiny Tim craving, longing for a Christmas goose from Ebenezer Scrooge? 
No, what God says is wrong in the Tenth Commandment is something far more serious. Uh, my theological dictionary is a safer guide. It says covet is an inordinate desire for something. An inordinate desire is one that exceeds the normal limits. One that strays into forbidden territory. Craving for something that's off limits. Something you don't need, but something that you want. And as such, coveting, I would suggest, is a problem for every one of us here. Certainly including myself. What everyone wants. However, because coveting is something that we think rather than something we do, like murder, stealing, committing adultery, we may believe it is less serious. However, as we will discover, it is a serious sin which requires a radical remedy. A serious sin which requires a radical remedy. So, let's look at the problem and then at the solution. Try and stay with me. First of all, covetousness is a serious sin. And let's begin at the beginning by looking at the source of the problem. Once again, it's amazing as we've looked at this series, how often all of this goes back right to the beginning of history, to Genesis chapter 3 and the fall in the Garden of Eden of our first parents. In fact, we discover in Genesis 3, if you look closely, that covetousness is the original sin. God created the world in all its beauty and goodness, abundance. He gave the man and woman everything they needed. Genesis 2, 8 and 9. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. They had more than enough to be satisfied, but the Lord placed one prohibition on them, one thing forbidden. Verse 16, Genesis 2. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. You see, this prohibition was a test as to whether Adam and Eve would be satisfied with what the Lord had given them and would freely love him, trust him and obey him. Sadly, they failed the test. As we know, the devil in the form of a servant caused them to doubt God's goodness and intentions and offered them a carrot, or maybe an apple, whatever, forbidden fruit, of becoming like God if they ate from the forbidden fruit. He said, there's something you're missing here which will really satisfy you. This is what you really want. Significantly, if you read the background in the Bible, it was the same sin that caused the devil himself to fall from glory, to fall from heaven. And the first sin, therefore, they committed was covetousness. Seeing and desiring, which led to action. Notice carefully, Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Notice, she saw it, she desired it, she took it. And now, through our first parents, we inherit that same sinful propensity which begins with desire and it leads to action. The little New Testament book of James describes this process. The same problem for everyone. James 1, 13-15. Listen carefully. When tempted, 
no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted, when by his own evil desire, notice the words, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Can you see the process? See it work in your own life? See something you want? Looks desirable? Soft limits? You dwell on it? You think on it? And eventually, you do it. So this is the source of the problem, the problem of covetousness. And what follows is even worse. For covetousness is then the root of all evil. One of the many common misquotations from the Bible is people say, there's even songs about it, that money is the root of all evil. Actually, the Bible doesn't say that. The Apostle Paul, in his first letter to Timothy, actually said, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. The key word is love. There is nothing wrong with money as such. All of us have money. We carry money in our pockets, our wallets, in plastic. The problem comes when we love money. That kind of love is covetousness. To love money like that is to covet money. The love of money is not the root of all evil, but it is a root of all kinds of evil. And to love money is just one kind of covetousness. But it's a many-headed monster which feeds its desire on anything it can. Be it your neighbour's house or wife, probably not donkey, but car, or anything that belongs to your neighbour, the verse says. Covetousness is the root of all evil, for all evil, all sin, as we've seen, begins with sinful desire and it results in sinful action. You see, you shall not covet is the last of the Ten Commandments, but all the other nine begin with covetousness. And if you probe behind every sin, you'll see this happening. Let's just take a classic example from the Bible. A well-known story, if you know the Bible. The story of King David whose sin was confronted by a prophet who said, you are the man. Find it in 2 Samuel 11 to 12. And David confessed, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, stop for a moment and ask yourself, which of the Ten Commandments did he break? Well, the obvious answer, he broke the Seventh Commandment. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So he broke the Seventh Commandment. But that wasn't all. He tried to deceive Uriah and later lied to cover his tracks so he broke the ninth commandment by lying. Furthermore, he conspired to have Uriah killed, so he also committed the, broke the sixth commandment by committing murder. And if you want to be a little bit pedantic, he not only committed adultery with Bathsheba, but he took her as his wife, so he also broke the eighth commandment by stealing. I was thinking about it, the problem, the only thing he didn't do was do it on the Sabbath. But you see, the first commandment he broke, which caused him to break all the rest, was the tenth. Listen carefully. Here's the anatomy of the crime. Listen carefully. An anatomy of sin. 2 Samuel 11.2 One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. From the roof of his palace, this is evening time, he looked down and he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Now stop there. There's no sin at this point. 
There's nothing wrong with this, although he probably should have been out fighting his battles at the head of his army. But anyway, be that as it may. But David didn't stop there. He sent someone, one of his servants, he said, just notice the woman down there. Go and find out who she is. The servant comes back and he says, David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now here's a a point. David can stop at this point and say, "Uh uh-oh, better not break the commandment. But desire is giving birth to sin. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to her and he slept with her. So a whole course of disastrous events is set in chain which could affect even future, did affect future generations. But it all began when David broke the tenth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbour's wife. Now it may not be a woman or a man that you covet. Maybe a home, a career, position, a family, a car, a sport or whatever. But once, once you begin to wish to long, to crave, to lust after that object, then you break the tenth commandment. And as sure as night follows day, you will begin to break some of the other commandments as well. Maybe you thought that the tenth commandment wasn't a really big issue. After all, you say, it's only in my thinking, in my mind. But covetousness is a deadly serious issue. It's the root of all evil. No wonder, you notice what Jesus said in the the Sermon on the Mount? He focused on the commandment about adultery. Here's the challenge. Jesus said, you've heard it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 5, verse 27. No wonder that he went on to say, you need to be ruthless with your eyes and if your eye offends you, pluck it out. In other words, not literally, be ruthless with what you look at. Be ruthless with what you watch. Because if it feeds your imagination and your desire, it will eventually lead you into sin. And the Ten Commandment, therefore, is one that affects all of us. Including those that may say, well, we've done pretty well. I've enjoyed this series. Murder? No way. Adultery? No. Stealing? Do my best. I'm honest. Lying? Try to be truthful. Very interesting, isn't it? That the Apostle Paul, discussing God's law and how good it was, said it was the Tenth Commandment that caught him out. Paul was the most religious person you could wish to meet. He was an upright man. He almost certainly didn't break most of the commandments. This is what he says in Romans 7. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. Now, here's the process again. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire, for apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. But you may ask, I still don't get this. Why was Paul so worried about the tenth commandment? After all, unlike David, he didn't commit murder or adultery. Why is covetous such a serious matter? To discover that, we need thirdly to get to the heart of the matter. I said that breaking the tenth commandment leads us to breaking the other nine. Maybe you would concede that in respect of the second half of the commandments, those that relate to our neighbour. But what about the early commandments we looked at that relate to our relationship with God? Well, in the third chapter of his letter to the Christians in Colossae, the Apostle Paul gives a list of 
sins which he says Christians should avoid, should put to death. And among them is greed, which in some translations of the Bible is covetousness. And he says, this kind of greed or covetousness, it's idolatry. Why? Because it puts something other than God at the heart of our desires. Noel shared with us about purpose-driven church. Purpose, we're made for God's pleasure. We're made for God to be at the centre of our lives, the object of our love. We will only find fulfilment when our lives orbit around God at the centre. But if we put our desire in other things, if we put something or someone in the place of God, we're in trouble. It is the heart of the matter. Chris Wright comments on the Ten Commandments. Thus, the commandments come full circle. The tenth is to break the first. For covetous means setting our hearts and affections on things that then take the place of God. And that is why covetousness is such a serious matter. Why it convicted and caught out a religious, morally upright man like Paul. And if him, certainly each one of us. You see, God and God alone deserves our undivided worship. That He's the heart of everything. The focus of our love. In fact, the Bible describes him as a jealous God who will not tolerate rivals. It doesn't mean jealous like we're jealous. It means God is zealous about his honour in our lives. And the problem is, there are lots of rivals out there that call for your attention and say, yeah, just fit your church in as a little, you know, you can fit in an hour or two on Sunday, uh, as long as it hasn't gone too long. And look at this, it's quarter past, and the pastor's already ten minutes late. Goodness me, my dinner's getting burnt, you know. But just put God in a compartment, and you can live for other things as well, and uh, you know, unless God is at the centre, we're in trouble. But we're taken in by the appeal, aren't we? Christmas is the worst time of all, isn't it? You know, when you, when you come to Christmas and your kids say to you, when they're small, they say, if you buy me a, whatever it is, an Xbox or what the latest thing is, you know, if you buy me this, I'll be really happy. I'll never ask for anything else again. I know it. And by Boxing Day, it's either broken or they're fed up with it. And we smile and laugh and say, but listen, friends, the grown-ups, what is it you're looking for around the corner that's really going to satisfy you? Oh, if only I could change my career. That will really make my life. When I could change my partner, my family, that house that we live in, my car. It's just silly things, really, aren't they? Well, some of them are very important. Don't let me not minimise that. But they will never fully satisfy and material things particularly have this gripping appeal. You know, it's a, it's a fascinating thing that we so easily ignore. Have you ever thought about how much Jesus talked about the problem of being rich? <laughs> it really is incredible. You go through the Bible, in the, if you don't mind underlining your Bible, go through and highlight all the verses Jesus talked about riches and wealth. And he, said he, he said, getting rich people into heaven is like getting a camel through the eye of a needle. Well, it's not very easy. And he went on to warn his hearers about the impossibility of trying to serve two masters. Notice the language he uses in Matthew 6. This is the Sermon on the Mount again. No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate one and love the other, he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. Notice the language that's used. Devotion. Hate. 
The strong emotive terms of desire. And each one of us has to make a choice of who we'll serve, what we will love. And that choice is seen in what we treasure most of all. Where is my treasure? So Jesus concludes, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is the heart of the matter. No matter what you sing, you can sing every modern song of worship at the top of your voice in complete harmony. But unless it tallies with your life, it's hypocrisy. You see, covetousness is a serious sin. So let's turn, because we need to, to what is the remedy. We need a radical remedy. If the heart of the problem is the human heart, then radical surgery is needed. Something that can change our inherited inclination to go our own way and desire other things rather than God. Our greatest need then, first of all, is a change of heart. Interestingly, if you read the Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, this is what they promised, that God would write his law on the hearts of people, that he would change their inclination, that he would change their nature rather than just an outward obedience to the law, because it doesn't work. It's what David prayed in that great psalm, Psalm 51, when he committed these terrible sins of adultery and murder. He said, Lord, create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Now, the great news is this. Jesus Christ came into the world to make that possible through his Son. Not just to forgive your sin, wonderful though that is, not just to assure you of a hope of eternity when you die. Amazing though that is, he came to change your heart, to change your nature. So that you're born again of the Spirit of God and you have a new desire, a new inclination to love God and to serve God. Now if you're not a Christian this morning and you think, well that would be wonderful but I couldn't keep it up, I'd never be able to do that. Exactly. That's the problem with the law. It tells us what we should do but it, but it, it just makes us guilty because we can't do it. But God has done this wonderful thing. He gives us a new nature. So the Apostle Paul reminds the Christians in Corinth, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what happens? He's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That's the only radical cure for covetousness. It attacks it at its root, at our fallen nature. And without that change, you have no hope of winning this battle. But the sure sign that you're winning the battle, the sure sign that you really are a Christian, maybe you've been coming to Christianity Explored, and maybe you're making your way on that spiritual journey, there comes a point in your life where you have to turn from your sin and trust in Christ, and when the Holy Spirit comes to live in you, and you're one of the most remarkable changes, you begin to love God, and to love His Word, and to love His commandments. And before you thought they were a drag. And God was a spoil sport for telling you all these things you should not do. But the wonderful thing is when you become a Christian, you begin to love God's law. It's a wonderful sign of God's work in you. And one of the signs then that leads on is not only a change of heart, but a change of perspective. It's amazing, though, all rationally we know that material things don't satisfy, yet still we seek them, no matter how much we have. The 19th century German philosopher Schopenhauer said, covetousness is like seawater. The more we drink, the more thirsty we become. In his inauguration speech, uh, the media made a great deal of Dr. John Santamo being the first black archbishop of York. 
and he commented very rightly, to judge your human happiness by how big your shopping trolley is, is to miss the point. Poverty is not acceptable, but to assume that material wealth automatically produces happiness, history and human nature tell us this is not the case. And if you're a Christian with a new nature, you begin to learn and know it's not the case. But it is an ongoing battle, a different perspective. Again, listen to what Paul writes, and we studied it, was it, what year we're in now? But we studied it recently when we went through uh, different parts of the Bible. We're looking at contentment in Philippians. Here's the context of those verses about the love of money is the root of all evil. Listen, Listen carefully. 1 Timothy 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And I I often read these verses at funeral services. Not for the benefit of the people who have gone, but for those who are still there who don't believe it. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction, form a love of money is a root of all that kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. He's writing this to Christians. Here's Paul looking back and he says, I can think of people who walk closely with Christ, who served him faithfully and have been diverted off course into many griefs because they were tripped up by money. Maybe you're one this morning here in Charlotte Chapel. And your heart's desire is switched. Oh, nobody knows about it, but in your heart of hearts, what you're really after is material prosperity. Godliness with contentment is acquired by recognizing that material things don't last, you can't take them with you. The basic necessities are enough, food and clothing. The love of money leads to ruin, even if you are a Christian. No, we have a different perspective on money and material things. Jesus constantly spoke about it. You remember Jesus preaching that day. You know, he's preaching about the eternal perspective. And some joker in the crowd puts his hand up and says, Lord, please tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. You know, where there's a will, there's a relative. Amazing, isn't it? And Jesus says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of grief. Greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told that story, the rich fool who got all those possessions, and he said, that's it, I'm made now, I'll take early retirement. And God said to him, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you, who will get this stuff? And he concludes with a warning about spiritual poverty. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. A different perspective. So, are you rich towards God? How's your heavenly bank balance doing? Are you laying up treasure in heaven? Wealth which will never depreciate or decay. So, if we have that change of perspective, there is a third change. Thirdly, a change of priorities. You see, the natural inclination for all of us is to worry about providing for yourselves and your family. That should be a priority in our lives. But worrying about it is not. Jesus tells his followers, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. 
They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount again. So he goes on to say, don't worry. So don't worry, saying, what should we eat? What should we drink? What should we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Instead, your priority should be, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. That's a great promise at Christmas time when the pressure is on us to get a mounting bill on our credit cards that we struggle to pay off by the following Christmas when we add more to it. Your heavenly Father knows to indulge in coveting is to say that you're not happy with what God has given you and that you need more. It is to, is to, it is to doubt your heavenly Father. So let me conclude. I'm almost there. And ask, how are you getting on with the Ten Commandments? Let me close by suggesting three characteristics of the person who is winning the battle. And it is an ongoing battle. Who is learning, like the Apostle Paul, the secret of being content in any and every situation. Philippians 4, verse 12. The first is gratitude. Develop an attitude of gratitude. Not worrying or complaining about what you don't have, but being grateful to God for what you do have. The second is generosity. A person who doesn't covet things holds unlikely lightly to them and is happy to give them away. Generously. Jesus said, given it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be poured into your lap for with the measure you use it will be measured to you. The reason why some of us haven't, some of us, and I don't make this a general for everybody. The reason why some of us haven't got more money is that God can't trust you with more money because you keep it instead of giving it away. And the third and final characteristic, which is less tangible, is in our demeanour. A lightness of spirit, a joy. If you want a third G, if you like alliteration, gladness. It's that inner joy from coming that comes from knowing our lives don't consist in what we have, but in what we are in Christ. And that nothing, whatever, whatever happens, whatever we have or don't have, can separate us from his love. Many years ago, when I was a postgraduate student, we came into our university department one morning to discover that it had been broken into. And this is the days before people had laptops and computers, uh, a, a typewriter, a personal typewriter had been stolen which belonged to a female student. I didn't know her very well, she was a Welsh girl. I always remember she came in and we said there's been a break in and I'm afraid your typewriter's been stolen. She immediately said, never mind, perhaps the person who stole it had a greater need than me. And I thought, she's either a Christian or a communist. And I'm sad to say, she was a communist. I wish that more Christians, myself included, could display such an attitude to material possessions. Surely then people would sit up and ask questions about people who hold on lightly to things because they hold on firmly to Christ. You shall not covet. Let's ask God to help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again we recognise that your word penetrates 
not just on the surface but into our very thoughts and intentions and desires and we realise how far short we fall but we thank you that in Christ if we are in Christ, new creations born again of your spirit that you are doing a work in our lives and there is a battle involved help us therefore to learn the secret of contentment and not to be taken in by desire not to be trapped by covetousness but to be content in Christ rejoicing in all that you give to us and sharing it in Christ generously with others we ask it in Jesus name and for your glory Amen let's sing a final hymn our time has gone but we can sing together that really focuses on what our vision should be number 51 be thou my vision O Lord of my heart verse 4 says riches I heed not nor man's empty praise thou mine inheritance now and